chapter 21, hear the word of the Lord from John the Apostle from Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, we thank you so much for our worship this morning, chance to come to you in song and and word, uh, to be able to speak praises to you, to join with the angels of heaven and praising you and declaring who you are and uh, what you're about. We thank you for uh, your work that you're doing in people's lives, God, works of healing and then uh, works of service and various things, God, that you uh, are, are always about and always in the midst of. Lord, uh, I pray now that you would help us to look at your scriptures here this morning and to glean from them. And I pray that you would speak you me pray. Amen. Well, um, so happens that, of course, uh, Nick and Sharon are, are traveling this morning. And uh, so uh, this week I'll be filling in. And next week, uh, I think Walton will be filling in. And we're both in Revelation, uh, sort of back-to-back passages. And so um, we'll be kind of, uh, I guess you could call this maybe a two-parter. I don't know, but I've got part one. So... Um, I just want to start by saying that, uh, you know, we believe that John, the apostle, wrote Revelation. And he uh, was stranded on the Isle of Patmos and so forth, as you know. And so John is given this incredible revelation from God that this, this entire book teaches us. Now, John's vision was was able to be detected by multiple senses. And to me, that's a good sign. That's a sign that, you know, you got something really going on here. Uh, he, he, what he had was visual. He was able to see what was being revealed to him. And he was also able to hear what was being uh, given to him and told to him. So he's able to see and he's able to hear and detect these things. So God is engaging with his senses in this vision Uh, that he's giving him in the book of Revelation. Now, so many times when we read the book of Revelation, uh, we approach it in one of two ways. And let me just 
Let me, before I get into that, let me read verse one. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Uh, traditionally throughout history in the church, people have interpreted these events in Revelation one of two ways. Usually they fall in the camp of where these things, many of these things are literal or they'll fall in the camp of where many of these things are symbolic. And you know as well as I do that there's no small controversy over that in some Christian circles, all right, about, you know, when Jesus is going to come, the order of things, and so forth uh, that we have. And according to the book of Revelation and other apocalyptic literature books and, and passages we have in the Bible too. But um, so, so Revelation, we, can, we read it, often read it as either an event that's to come or something figurative. That's uh, that is teaching us, and almost always the argument is put to one instead of the other. You know, is this about the church, or is this going to be about the actual city of Jerusalem coming down, or is it figurative about the church, figurative of the people of God? There's evidence for for either position uh, in terms of how you can interpret that, and I think probably good evidence. Uh, but I'm going to ask you this morning to do something that may be new to you today, uh, or may, maybe not. Maybe this is something you've been doing your whole life. But for me, I came to a point in my life where I learned to start reading Scripture more this way uh, at one point. And, uh, I believe, first of all, it's the human tendency to, to assume one without the other in regards to passages like this. Because when you read authors, they're going to they're gonna say, okay, well, if this is symbolic and this is figurative, then that means it's not this over here. You know, if, if uh, it seems impossible to a scholar that Jesus could, that, excuse me, that Jonah could actually be swallowed by a whale for three days and live underwater and then be vomited out, that seems impossible. So that's got to be figurative, some scholars would say. Um, but let me ask you this. That, that's the human tendency when we read things in our modern scientific mindset, in our modern, the way we read things today as a, as a result of a long line of, of what I would call maybe, uh, I think it's more, more common today than in the past, maybe due to things like the Enlightenment and uh, just German uh, scholasticism and so forth. There's a lot of reasons for it. But uh, I'm going to ask you to do this. I want you to consider what if... Both are true. What if what is really going on here is that there's really a holy city coming down and that's actually going to happen and that it really is figurative of the church at the same time? Because it is only in our, our hubris that we might think it has to be an either-or situation in situations like this that it has to be one or the other, that it can't be both at the same time. But I would posit this, I would tell you this, that the way that people in Scripture, in the time of Christ, and the time before Christ, interpreted all of nature, is they knew, there, they knew that there was, that when wind blew, that air was hitting them. But they saw something spiritual in the wind. They interpreted it spiritually too. They knew that when uh, a, <clears throat> a falling star fell from the earth, that if they traveled far enough, they might find the, the, the meteorite because meteorites were found and held in high esteem in ancient times. 
but they also saw it as a spiritual thing. They saw it as a spiritual moment that meant something. It meant something to them as well. And so there's a, there's a church father that I particularly like to read. His name's Isidore of Seville. He's one of the late ones. And he, uh, he really takes the, he takes nature and he shows how all of nature, even though it's scientific, even though it's, it's all, you know, what you see and what you observe is real through a telescope, what you see these things, it also has, can have spiritual meaning behind it. It can mean something to us. It could teach us about God in one way or another. And this is scriptural. The heavens declare the glory of God, as the Bible says. <clears throat> so we need to view, I think, passages like this, or at least be more open to viewing passages like this as understanding that, yes, these things are going to happen. Christ is going to come back. The holy city of Jerusalem is going to come down and there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. But he's also talking about the people of God. He's talking about both. Um, so what if events in history are in part ordained to be figurative and for our growth? What if God in his wisdom really did make it where things in Scripture historically happened sometimes in times of Council of 40? How many times have you heard some theologian or you know, a scholar or something say, well, 40 years is just figurative. It's not real. That, that just stands for a long time. That stands for a long period of time. Or a thousand years. How many times have you heard a theologian say, oh, well, well a thousand years, it's how, you know, that just, in Scripture, that just means it's a long period of time. Well, are you sure? Are we really sure? I think that we need to be careful with that kind of thing and understand that, that sometimes, and I'm not saying that doesn't sometimes happen, you know, God does speak figuratively, too, in Scripture. But we also need to be careful, I think, in going too far with that and assuming that maybe God, maybe the children of Israel really did wander for 40 years. Maybe there really was 40 days and 40 nights of Goliath taunting the people of God before David stepped up to deal with him. Or maybe Moses was really on Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights. Uh, and we, we talk about a lot about in here sometimes, or, or we've read about, you know, the meaning of numbers and so forth. But just because that happened, ordained by God literally in history, does not mean it doesn't mean something to us on another level. It can be both, you see. It can be two things at once. And God ordained historical events a certain way for the good of his people for our walk to become closer to him throughout human history. I believe that to be true. So you probably do believe maybe that the numbers like this are literal or you may believe they're symbolic or you may believe them both at the same time. I, I tend to fall on the latter camp on that. Um, so we, there are some things we do this without really realizing it. For instance, in terms of the whole symbolism versus literal, we all would probably agree in this room if I went around and asked that marriage is symbolic of Christ in the church. But I'd go around, if I were to go around and ask everybody that. Because the scriptures make that, Paul makes that clear in his epistles. But that doesn't mean we don't get married. 
That doesn't mean that we, oh, it's symbolic, so let's throw marriage out because it's just a symbol. We don't have to get married. That's no, that, that's, that's wrong. So <clears throat> symbol does not necessarily mean that we don't take the literal as well. And I think it's very important that we, that we understand that in the church and not let postmodernism take that over in our culture because I think it does. I think it's, it can creep into the church and uh, it can cause some, some issues there. So um, there's a literal act here and there's a figurative thing of something else. And again, like I said, the same thing happens in terms of nature. Uh, the people of God, you know, the people in the Old Testament, the people in the New Testament, you know, we tend to think in our, in our modern times that they were very uh, disunderstanding and they didn't understand, we might use the word ignorant, about science and so forth. Yeah, obviously we know more due to observation, our ability to observe about science now. But they also knew a lot. They really didn't know a lot. Um, you know, they knew that, you know, the, the, the Greeks knew that the, church, that the earth was round. They already knew that. Um, that's not something that was discovered nearly as recently as people think. Okay, so let's look at, uh, let's look at the scriptures here. Again, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So here we have John seeing that the sky and the earth are remade. Christ has taken the old world we have now, and he has made a new one. The old one has passed away. The idea in the Greek here is it's going by you. It's passed, passed by you. It's gone. You're, you're past that. The old one has passed away. It is behind us. It is in the past. John is not seeing the old. He is seeing the new earth. A new earth that he has never seen before. That no one has ever seen before up until this. Except maybe Ezekiel. We'll talk about that. But anyway. Um, and given uh, the other eschatological passages we have in Scripture, there is no reason to doubt that God is indeed going to make his fallen creation new again. It's going to happen. He's going to come and he's going to make new the creation that has fallen, that has fallen into disrepair. The, uh, uh, the law, I don't know if you didn't know about the term called the law of entropy, that will be no more. Okay, that means that things are not going to get worse over time after Christ does this. Things are not going to break down, okay, because Christ is making all things new. He's making all things new. And this new earth, this new heaven, he's doing something new, and it's, it doesn't have death. It doesn't have corruption. It doesn't have sin. We, have new, we will have new bodies, but as new bodies, we'll have a new earth to dwell in as well in the resurrection. We'll have a new earth to dwell in as well. In Romans 8, it says, uh, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fidelity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So this is the new creation that John is seeing that Paul writes about, that the creation we have now is groaning toward. It's groaning toward this event. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I don't want to focus on the, the creation, the new creation at the expense of focusing on the resurrected Christ. He will be there with us. Um, and that is going to be the pinnacle of it all. The fact that he is there with us. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. So as with these writings of Paul and the rest of the witness of Scripture, we can have faith, brothers and sisters, that this isn't some symbolic writing only. That this isn't some piece of narrative or, or literature that, that is, uh, that's just, I don't know, figurative or poet, poetic or something like that. But God really is going to do a new thing of remaking things. He really is going to do it. And I think in our modern world, we're losing, people are losing true belief in these great eschatological truths. People are just starting to let them fall by the wayside, unfortunately. Uh, they just aren't thinking about these things the way that Scripture tells us to think about, to be, to be mindful of these things, to watch and pray and be looking forward to them. That's what, that's what Scripture tells us to do. God is going to do a new thing of remaking all things. And here's something else he says in that passage. He says the sea is no more. The sea is no more. Why would he not want the sea? I'm like, hey, I like going to the beach. You know what? Why would he not want the sea? Um, well, the sea, and I could give you some, some thoughts on this. The sea is the one thing on earth that keeps all cultures from coming together. Uh, we have to send missionaries on the other side of the world because of the sea. Uh, we have to, uh, you, you know, cultures that are over here don't interact with cultures over here. Even in modern, you know, internet times where you can FaceTime people and so forth, uh, the sea is still our greatest, our greatest separation between cultures throughout the world. And, and that's just the way it is. Uh, because of the sea, we went for thousands of years without people in the, in the European continent, in Africa, and anybody over here ever making contact with the people across the sea in North and South America. It's because of the sea. So the sea separates cultures, and it, it separates us all. It is, the, it is the, the biggest separator in human history of cultures coming together, if you think about it. Um, and here's, here's something else that's interesting. Let, let me read a couple of passages to you. This one from Luke 21. It says, And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and this is Jesus talking, I believe, on, and, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming in the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So the sea also represents turmoil. It also represents uh, danger, danger and turmoil, uh, particularly people of that era. It represented danger and turmoil. In Psalm 46, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble and its, and its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. He shall not be moved. God will help her when morning comes down. That's from Psalm 46. 
I think you're probably going to hear more about the river in the city of God from, from Walton next week. I think that's more in that passage. But, um, so, but he's talking about the city of God. This is talking about, again, a perfect example of a figurative passage. Christ is the river of life for us. But I think he's talking about the river of life in heaven that flows from the throne room of God. Okay? Um, now, the sea, again, this is where symbolism does come in strongly. The sea represents turmoil and danger. Elsewhere in, in uh, Scripture, it says the sea gives up its dead. We read that. All through Scripture, the sea is usually a troubling matter. You have, you have the sea storm and fish that swallowed Jonah due to the storm. You have the sea that would not let the Israelites cross until Moses parted it. It, it prevented them from getting away. It's always a problem. Uh, the sea that was rough until Jesus calmed it with a word on the boat. Uh, and then in, elsewhere in the book of Revelation, you have a beast rising up out of the sea. A creature rising up out of the sea. A, a dangerous thing. So... <clears throat> In the new creation, this turmoil, and this is, this is what I want you to really, to really uh, hear. In the new creation, this turmoil and danger will not be there. The turmoil and danger will not be there. Uh, a lot of people don't know this. I didn't know it. Maybe you knew it. I don't know. But uh, 80% of the ocean is unexplored. Over 80%. That's hard to believe in the 21st century in 2022, that there's 80% of the oceans on earth are completely unexplored. We don't have a clue what's down there. We don't have a clue what could be down there. Um, the Bible talks about sea monsters. There may be. We don't know. Nobody's seen it. Nobody's seen uh, the, the, the depths of 80% of the oceans. All we've seen is 20%. So um, there will not be this great unknown of what may lie in the depths. The unknown is no longer there. And, and here's something else to chew on. The sea in Scripture is sometimes associated with Satan or a serpent of evil himself in places. In Isaiah 27.1, it says, In that day the Lord with his, hand, with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. <clears throat> Jerome, who uh, is best known for giving us the Latin Vulgate, wrote, This is the dragon that was cast out of paradise, that beguiled Eve, and is permitted in this world to make sport of us. So certainly then the sea represents the place of chaos. The enemy or enemies of the people of God. So physically, the sea will be gone. Figuratively, figuratively, will be as well. For all things God created, in part, leads to our greater understanding and growing closer to God. <clears throat> our theosis, you might say, meaning our growing into God, our growing closer to Him to be more like Him. <clears throat> so even the sea, even the sea, along with all other created things, is there to teach us about God and how he works. And it's for our edification. Okay, let's, look, let's move on. Verse 2, Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
So here now, John sees something amazing happen. He sees a city, a holy city coming down out of heaven from God. Not just out of heaven, but from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, Jerusalem has always been and still is, or most of through a lot of history, and, and still is the biggest flashpoint in the world. Uh, there's three major religions that, you know, kind of... Uh, take part in Jerusalem, Christianity, uh, Judaism, and and Islam. And so uh, these worldwide worldwide religions all claim Jerusalem as their their, holy place. It exists today with an uneasy peace between them, a precarious balance, we might say. It contains some of the most important things. It contains the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is supposedly the place where uh, Golgotha uh, exists as well as the tomb of Christ. Now, there's controversy over whether that's really the place, but, but traditionally that's the place. And the Orthodox believe it's the place. Um, so, here's, uh, here's another thing to, to think about. And I think this is important to, to know these things, the etymologies of these words, because you can learn so much from etymologies of city names and people's names. But if I were to pronounce Jerusalem the way that the root words would be, it would be Jeru Shalom, okay? So Jeru is the, is the place of, that's what that means, or city of, or place of. Shalom, as you know, means peace. So Jerusalem, the name means city of peace, or place of peace. And... Um, it's ironic because it's been anything but that, right? So throughout history, it's been anything but that. Well, guess what? The new Jerusalem is going to be the place of peace. It is going to be. With the new heaven and new earth, the city that is the dwelling place of God in the Hebrew religion, in their, their religion, it is the dwelling place of God in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. The city... The new Jerusalem is replaced with a new one descending out of heaven. It is no ordinary city, but it is a city adorned according to these scriptures that we just read. It does not come from this world, though. It comes from God, from heaven, from God, having been prepared in heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In this case, Scripture itself gives us an easy segue into the figurative because John John himself says it is as a bride adorned for her husband. So you you can safely say that this also represents the people of God because the people of God are the bride of Christ, you see, the bride of Christ. But it doesn't have to only mean that. It's also a city coming down. A city, the holy city coming down from God. Um, therefore, we can un- assume this is a climactic moment. And, uh, you know, we go to a wedding, any wedding you've ever been to, the moment the bride walks in the back door, all eyes turn, and she takes all the focus out of the room onto her. Everybody's focused on that. Um, suddenly, she owns everything in that room. She's like the center of all, all, all revolves around the bride walking in that in that church so uh the people stand the people all you know they they'll make noise they're excited they they, they're amazed at her beauty as she walks forward with the wedding march 
And so this new Jerusalem is adorned like that for her husband. It's adorned like that bride that you can't take your eyes off of, that you're so in awe of that it takes, turns every head toward it to look at that bride coming in the back of the church. That's the visualization we've got here. Adorned like a bride for her husband. So a new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven to the new earth, a Jerusalem that will look amazing. Let's look, uh, let, let me read uh, something that reminds us the new Jerusalem is the people of God. For Ephesians 5, 25 and 22, and this, this speaks of the, uh, of the church being the bride of Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of of water with the word, so that he might present the church to him in splendor, just like we just read, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. And then in, if you keep reading, I'm not going to read the whole passage. In verse 32, it says, the, the mystery is profound. For I, this is Paul talking. I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Talk about marriage, the marriage ceremony and the coming together of a man and wife. It's figurative about the church, Christ and the church. But again, it doesn't mean we don't get married. It doesn't mean that we throw marriage out because it's a figure, you see. Verse, verse 3 In Revelation, back to our text. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, this voice is from the throne. So it is a declaration of God the Father. This is like when he declared at the baptism of Jesus who Jesus was, that we're to listen to him. This is no angel speaking these truths, as we see elsewhere in Revelation. But the voice is coming from the throne of the invisible God, God the Father. And he is speaking loudly, perhaps like the voice of many waters as described elsewhere. He declares that God is now dwelling with man. No more will he dwell in that holy of holies. No more will he dwell in a non-accessible way. There is no more otherness other than the fact that God is sovereign and over us and we are under him, but he's with us. He's with us. He's not inaccessible. There's not just God as some simple in our hearts and minds as some prime mover or mere demiurge. He is God who lives with his people, his people and his people with them. He is with us. In the figurative sense or spiritual sense, this is already coming to pass. He is with us now. I believe in the physical sense, when this happens in the future, He will be among us in His body, you see. But He's with us now in spirit, that the Spirit of Christ is in us. And that's how He indwells us, the Spirit of Christ. So, in the resurrection, it won't just be that. He'll be, he'll be like when... It'll be like when uh, Thomas reached up and felt the, the wounds and felt the, 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 the hands and Jesus ate, food went into his body. That's how he's going to be with us in the end. 
It'd be with us as a man, as a human being, a physical person, but a glorified body. So even now, we believe He is in heaven in a real body. Even now, we just can't see Him yet because He hasn't returned. He hasn't come. Again, He is with us now in the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. So I can only imagine how it must have felt to the apostles having been in His physical presence, having experienced Him, and been there when Thomas touched his, his wrist or his, his hands or wrists or whatever it was and, and touched his side uh, and to have embraced Him and hugged Him and so forth and to hear His voice with their ears and to smell Him and experience Him as a human being. I, can't, I can only imagine how it must have felt to the apostles to, to look forward to that day again. You can imagine of what that must be like to know that I'm ready to see Him again. I'm ready to experience it that one more time. Okay? Um, all right, let's, let's get ready to wrap up. In verse 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So Jesus, Jesus wipes away our tears. Death shall be no more. There will be no more mourning, no crying, nor pain. Uh, the former things have passed away. And not just, it's not just the fact that we won't have tears. The Bible here tells us that Jesus is going to physically wipe away our tears. Somebody's going to do this. Wipe the tears from your eyes, according to the Scriptures here. Now, that does take a human body. That does take a person. Uh, for Jesus to come and wipe away your tears. As you, if you're a parent have wiped the tears from your child when your child has fallen or skinned his knee or hurt himself or herself, and you reach down and you wipe the tears from their eyes, and it's an act of love toward your child. Because you want, to, you don't, you want them to get over their pain. You want them to move past that. You want them to, to, to move out of the pain and into the, into the non-pain, into the good stuff. So that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to wipe away our tears and death shall be no more and there'll be no more mourning, crying, or pain. We shall live eternally and there's no sting of death and those we love who are in Christ, we can be assured we won't lose them. They'll be with us. And then he tells John to write all this down and John does so. Thankfully, he obeyed and we have the book of Revelation. And then he says, Christ says, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, God's saying, I'm not merely the beginning or the end of things. I'm not in the beginning or the end of things, but I am the beginning and the end of things. I am that. It starts with me, Christ says, and it ends with me, Christ says. Time itself is from God. Time itself is made by God. So being beginning and the end, he has an unchanging nature. He has an unfading glory of which time has no effect. He has an authority that never fades or breaks no matter what. And he is the plan. He doesn't just know the plan. He is the plan. He's the plan of history from the beginning to the end. So uh, the last thing we'll, we'll say real quickly, this passage that I'm reading today ends on this, this word that goes into more next week. But... It says, to the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life 
without payment. Those who thirst for God will be satisfied and thirst no more. Because, and we'll see in chapter 22, we'll see that stream, that spring of the water of life becomes a river flowing from the very throne of God himself, you see. And God has offered, God has offered water from the spring of the water of life without payment. We don't owe him a single thing. We owe him nothing. So. Well, brothers and sisters, let's rejoice in these, this reality and let's rejoice in what the scripture tells us. And I pray that it speaks to us this week that we can live our lives as people looking forward to the coming of Christ and looking forward to that day when we'll be with him in glory. Amen.